So as we begin this series called Heritage, one of the things that we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is we're going to be taking a look back in time to the Bible sites, the actual physical locations of where the stories of the Old Testament and even New Testament took place. And I, I can't wait to share with you about what we learned and what we were able to see on our journey in Israel as we walk the land called the Holy Land. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David becomes the second king of Israel. And he spends several years in a city called Hebron. And after his time there, he makes his way with an army of troops down to a place where the Jebusites are living. It, it would eventually become the city of David or Jerusalem. And as David makes his way down to this area, the Jebusites see him coming, and as he as he makes his way in uh, to the to the base of the of the of the city, uh, David encounters some of the Jebusite uh, army, and it's a really interesting dialogue that takes place. If you know anything about the terrain or the topography of the area, uh, Jerusalem or the Jebusite city sits pretty high on a hill and it's heavily fortified with these huge walls around it. And David and his army is down towards the bottom, and it's hundreds of feet between the top of the, of, the, of the walls down to the valley where David and his men were. And so in 2 Samuel 5, we see that the Jebusite army, they're mocking David and his men, and they're saying stuff like, we could send out our blind and our lame to defend this city against you. There's no way that the Jebusites thought that, that David and his army could, could overtake the city. And so David speaks to his, his people, his, his, his men, and he says to them, the way we're going to win this, this, this battle is by uh, going up the water shaft. That's the, that's the word translated into, into English. And scholars debate on what that means, but, but it was either that they were going to go through a pipe-like feature, a tunnel, which, uh, by the way, has been discovered. And we had a chance when we were in Israel to see what's called Warren Shaft, a place where David's men, specifically Joab, could have made his way up the tunnel, uh, up, the, up the, uh, the pipe, and into the city. Uh, some scholars disagree that that would be the way they would enter. The Hebrew word could also mean uh, hooks to place over the wall, so they would scale the wall with hooks and a rope. And so in either case, we see David and his men up against this insurmountable, uh, uh, up against insurmountable odds, trying to scale the wall, trying to enter the city. But certainly with God's help, we see that David and his men uh, breach the wall or breach the city. They take over the city. David now moves from Hebron and sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. It's called the city of David. And David, during his reign there of over 30 plus years, uh, he builds a palace and the city grows, he expands the territory, expands the walls, and he, has, he grows in power so much so that other kings are sending resources to help David build up the city of Jerusalem. And so David, after a period of time, realizes that he needs to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And, and his thought is, how can I have this incredible palace and God not have a place to be worshipped that's permanent? And so David has upon his heart to build a temple. Uh, if you know the story, you know that, that God says, David, you're not the one to build the temple, but your son Solomon uh, will build the temple. David had shed too much blood. And so Solomon, after David, has the opportunity to actually end up building the very first temple, the first permanent residence of worship 
um, for the people of Israel. So Solomon builds the temple. Solomon also builds a palace. And what was really, really cool about our time in Israel was that we were able to tour what was the uh, traditional site of David's palace, and we were also able to see where Solomon's palace would be located. It's really amazing to see that. As a matter of fact, right now, going on in Israel, there's excavations being done around that site. And so we were able to see in real time uh, them continuing to ex excavate these sites. So Solomon builds the temple. And here we have the first permanent residence, if you will, of, of the dwelling of God with men. Solomon reigns as the third king of Israel, but after Solomon dies, a very interesting thing happens in the nation of Israel. The kingdom actually splits. And so 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, compose the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and two of the 12 tribes compose the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Over the next couple of hundred years, we see that many different kings ruled and reigned on, in northern, it, it, northern, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And you can read about these stories in the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. I encourage you to read those stories. They're incredible stories. But a couple hundred years pass, and something very interesting happens. You know, the, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, they are prophesying about a coming destruction of the northern kingdom and a coming destruction even of the southern kingdom. And, and these prophets continue to warn the nation of Israel, and Israel just continues to live out in rebellion. And so eventually, there comes a time where the northern kingdom is going to face uh, face judgment. And so God uses the Assyrian Empire in about 720 or 722 BC. He uses the Assyrian Empire to come and take over the northern kingdom. And they're led off, the, the, the nation of Israel is led off into captivity under the Assyrian conquest. During this time, Hezekiah is reigning as king in the southern kingdom called Judah. And Hezekiah sees what's, what's taking place in the northern kingdom, and he understands that Assyria is eventually going to make their way to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, to try to take over the southern kingdom as well. And so the Bible tells us that Hezekiah uh, gets word that the Assyrian army is making their way, and they're destroying village after village and town after town as they're making their way down to Jerusalem. And as this process is unfolding, Hezekiah begins to search and, and, and try to discover what should he be doing in Jerusalem. And so after a period of prayer, after a period of consultation with his advisors and military personnel, Hezekiah realizes he needs to do something that's out of the box. He needs to dig a tunnel. And so Hezekiah realizes that if he can cut off the water supply from the Assyrian army as they make their way and eventually lay siege to Jerusalem, that he'll have the opportunity to withstand the siege. And so Hezekiah comes up with this incredible plan. He is going to reroute the Gion Spring from its current water flow underneath the city of David, which is Jerusalem, and he reroutes it underneath the city. Now, to get this done, he, he, he hires many, many, many people because they're literally going to have to carve through solid rock. And so for a long period of time, uh, Hezekiah's men work to build this tunnel to reroute the Gion Spring underneath the city of David. And the story is told uh, that, that, that men dug from two different directions uh, in this tunnel. And they dug with, in two different directions and they eventually met up. And there was an inscription that was found 
uh, that was at the end of the of the of Hezekiah's tunnel, and the inscription read that there was a location where the pickaxes from both different directions met up and they struck together, and the eventual result of that was the, that the Gion Spring was rerouted underneath the city. Now the significance of this was that the water ne- did not flow out of the city any longer; it actually flowed through the city. And if you know anything about the New Testament, one of the incredible, incredible truths is, is that the Gion Spring actually flowed now into what would become the Pool of Siloam, which was a pool of miracles in the New Testament. Church, we had the opportunity to literally walk through this tunnel. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And while we were there on location, we walked through the tunnel that's been, that's been in existence for thousands and thousands of years. Presently today, water is still flowing through that tunnel. It truly was remarkable to be able to walk through that tunnel and to to just see something that's been in existence for thousands and thousands of years. It's truly amazing. And this series called Heritage is is really learning lessons, principles that can govern our lives even today as as Christ followers. Lessons that we can learn from from our past. Uh, Christianity has its roots in Jerusalem. Israel is the birthplace of Christianity, and we should learn all that we can from, from our heritage. And so this series is about that. And so if you're a guest with us this morning, or if you're watching online at solacechurch.com, thank you, thank you, thank you for choosing to be here and to be, be, uh, be watching and tuned in. Thank you for being a part of this. Let's talk today, church, about Hezekiah. It's an incredible story. As you just heard from David all the way through Hezekiah, it's an incredible journey of, 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 uh, of the, the nation of Israel being built and being established, the capital there being in Jerusalem, and then ultimately the capital city, Jerusalem, coming under siege. The, the timeline is really interesting. So you have David who begins to reign in the year 1000 or so BC. And then you have a couple of hundred years that pass. And then you have the breakup, the northern and southern kingdom breakup. And then you have these different kings that reign for a couple of hundred years. But the prophets are warning, get right, be right, honor God or judgment is coming. And they ignore over and over again these prophetic warnings. And so eventually in 722 or 720, the Assyrian army does come and take over the northern kingdom. Lead, lead, lead them, they led them off into captivity. About 20 years later, the Assyrian army, the empire, comes again. And now they're interested in the southern kingdom called Judah. Hezekiah is the king in Judah in about 720 uh, or seven, uh, uh, seven, 701 or 700 B.C. And it is this part of the story to me that has incredible benefit for us this morning. I want to take you through, step by step, the events that took place in the life of Hezekiah and the southern kingdom of Judah during this siege that was brought against Jerusalem. Now, there's some lessons to be learned, and I want to give those to you this morning. This story is found in three different places in Scripture. It's found in 2 Kings. It's also found in 2 Chronicles 32, which is where we're going to be looking at. It's also found in the book of Isaiah. Now, this might be a rookie mistake from your pastor, and I concede that I am still on a learning journey myself. But for some reason, when I read the book of Isaiah, and I've read it a number of times, I did not make the historical connection to Hezekiah and this specific story. I've read as Isaiah as this, you know, this prophet who's making warnings against the nation of Israel, you know, northern Israel, southern Judah, all this. But I really didn't make the historical connection to where Isaiah was 
in, in, in terms of history and proximity to Jerusalem. So you're going to find out about what that looks like in just a minute. So let me just take you on the journey today. Because what you're going to discover is what Hezekiah went through, oftentimes we find ourselves going through as well. So watch the story unfold. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32, if you want to turn there with me. Notice the story. After all that Hezekiah had done, or so faithfully done. All right, stop for just a moment. So that you know what the, what, what the intent here of the story is. Hezekiah came into power during a time where Israel is very, very wicked. They have basically stopped practicing temple worship. They've stopped the sacrificial system. They're not honoring the holy days. They've set up pagan worship sites. They're idols that, are, that they're sacrificing to false gods. Hezekiah comes in during a time where Israel, or really Judah, uh, is in a very dark place. Hezekiah comes in... And he cleans house. He comes in and he recognizes that the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom which he's in charge of, is responsible and accountable to God. And God has established a pattern of worship and a pattern of behavior that should be honored. And so Hezekiah comes in and tears down all the false, uh, uh, the, the, the idols that are set up to false gods. He institutes again temple worship, temple sacrifices, and honoring again the, the, the celebration of the holy days. He is this incredible king, this transformative king. And how many of you know that from time to time, house cleaning is necessary? It's true in our personal lives, it's true in our families, it's true in a nation. Hezekiah comes in and establishes a nation that is God-honoring again, God-centric. And how many of you know this? When you, when you seek to honor God in this way, inevitably there's going to be warfare, there's going to be battles. We all face battles at some point in our journey. There are relational struggles. There are financial struggles. There are, there are conflicts at work. There are projects that are difficult to complete. School sometimes gets difficult in terms of relationships. And so Hezekiah is going to find himself in the midst of a conflict. So after all that he had done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. Verse 2. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem. Now stop for a moment. Notice what's happened. The northern kingdom is already led into captivity. Now Assyria is after the southern kingdom. And, and, and Hezekiah has watched town after town and village after village being defeated and conquered by the Assyrian army. And they've now made their way to lay siege around Jerusalem. Now remember... Uh, the, the topography for just a moment. Jerusalem sits high on a hill. There are huge valleys on either side that, that are very, very, very deep. And so um, the Assyrian army uh, surrounds the city of Jerusalem and they're laying, laying siege to the city. They are, they are going to make, starve them out. They're going to cause them to run out of food. They're going to uh, stop all traffic in and out. And so this is where Hezekiah finds himself. So what does a person do like Hezekiah when he is facing this kind of difficult battle, what, what kinds of things does he engage in once the battle has begun to unfold? Take notes, because here's what we're going to learn about Hezekiah. If you're writing things down, it's just two lessons this morning. Here's the two things that he did. Number one, Hezekiah recognized that when battle comes, you have to be willing to engage in the battle yourself. Now, I know that's not earth-shattering this morning, and I understand that's like, duh, but let's think about that for a moment. 
You know, there's a couple of things that tends to happen in the midst of conflict, and it's true for all of us. Sometimes in conflict, and if you're going through it right now, you can appreciate this. In conflict, sometimes we find ourselves losing heart early on. When things are going well, when life is you know, going well and our family works and finances work, it's really easy to have a really good attitude, you know, worship Jesus and all that kind of stuff. When conflict comes, oftentimes we tend to lose heart quickly. We tend to want to give up and get frustrated and, you know, where are you, God, and all these kinds of things, right? So, so Ezekiah doesn't do that. He doesn't quit before the battle is underway. He recognizes he has a responsibility. I want you to notice also, and we'll see this in the text, Hezekiah does not do nothing. I think sometimes in the Christian journey, we can start to believe about, about this whole relationship with God that like every battle is just God's to fight and we're just simply to stand back and let God do all the work and he fixes everything, right? But that's not the way it, it actually happens. There's only a couple of times in scripture that we even see God saying to his people, stand still. One of those times you remember was when God parted the Red Sea. He asked the Israelites, stand still. Moses basically stretches his arms out. God parts the water. The Israelites were to do nothing in that moment. I think another time in scripture where we see God doing everything and us doing nothing is when Jesus is on the cross. Right? In that moment, we had nothing to do. God needed to do everything for us. I just heard a really good line. It was a great line. We were the problem, so therefore we could not be a part of the solution. God had to step in into our mess and become the solution for us, right? But, but the, the majority of the time in Scripture, what do we see? We see a partnership between the activity of man and the power of God. And so I want to show you just over the next couple of minutes, because if you're in the midst of the battle, there's some really good lessons to learn from Hezekiah. Notice what happens in the story in verse number three. Notice what he he does first. He consulted. He consulted with the officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped. Notice what else the story says in verse number four. Notice Notice the yellow lettering. A large force of men assembled. And they blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. I love the question. Why should the king of Assyria come and find plenty of water? It's outside the box thinking now. I'll talk about that in a moment. Verse number five. Then he worked hard, repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. Verse number six, he appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words. And we'll learn the words in just a moment. Do you see what Hezekiah is doing? He's not paralyzed with fear. He's not overwhelmed with circumstances, nor is he just kind of sitting back and going, God, I hope you got this, right? He's engaged in the battle. What does he do? The first thing he does, and this is a great lesson for everyone when you go through conflict. The first thing he did was get some advice. I think one of the problems we make when we're engaged in conflict is we just kind of have knee-jerk reactions. So we speak before we should, we act before we should, you know, we do something and usually it's stupid and usually we have to kind of try to get the words back in our mouth because things don't come out always right. Hezekiah didn't do that. He stopped for a moment and he gathered around himself people of wisdom and he said, what should we do? And so his military, official, uh, his military officers, his officials begin to think through. And then Hezekiah does this incredible thing. He begins to think differently about the conflict. And, and listen, 
you may be here this morning and the only thing you were supposed to come and hear, you, you, you might be able, to, able to, be, to check out after this comment, okay? It's possible this is the only reason you showed up today to hear a message at Solace Church. Somebody in the room needs to hear this. One of the things that happens in the midst of conflict and battle, relationally, spiritually, whatever it looks like, is when we get in the midst of conflict, we tend to get a little bit of tunnel vision. We tend to kind of just, you know, just, just kind of just, just laser in and focus in and lose our ability to really think through the big issue that's going on. And so we're so focused on the circumstances that we can't step back and look at it in a different light. And Hezekiah does that. He's not using conventional wisdom here, right? What does he say? They're laying siege around us. They're getting ready to come surround the city. What should we do? Well, the conventional wisdom is, you know, go out and meet them, go fight them, whatever. No, what does he do? Hey, I got an idea. Let's reroute the water. What? Like, hey, listen, let's think about this. The Assyrians are going to come and the water, the Gion Springs is going to feed them water. They're going to have plenty of water. Why don't we reroute the water? Why don't we bring it under the city so that we have water always? What a great idea. And here's the word of wisdom for someone in the room. You've been looking at the problem and the battle in such a tunnel-focused vision that you're missing the larger picture. And I think God would say to someone in the room, maybe it's time to get creative eyes, new, fresh perspective on what you're going through. And so surround yourself with some people that can bring a fresh perspective. I'm offering myself as your pastor. I'm 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 not old. I'm 37. But when I shave my head, I look smarter, all right? So that, so maybe, maybe you and I could sit down and have a conversation about your, what you're going through. Maybe it's your small group that you need to share what you're going through with and, and just allow them to speak something into your situation. Bring some fresh eyes on what you're going through. Hezekiah was willing to do that. And so before he acted, he got, he, he got, he got, he got counsel and he got a fresh perspective on the circumstances. Notice what else he does in this story. In this story, the Bible says that he, that he assembled some people and they built walls up to fortify the city. And again, this is critical in the midst of conflict. Because in the midst of conflict, we tend to act very unchristian. Anyone in the room? Well, I mean, when things go wrong, we tend to say stuff, do stuff that we normally would not do. If I were just being real honest and you would you know, raise your hand, some of you, when conflict comes, your mouth gets really, really filthy. Like you say stuff that you normally would not say. Some of us in the room, we spout off stuff. We're, we can be very mean in the midst of conflict. And so what Hezekiah does, he knows if he's going to win this battle, he's going to have to fortify his defenses. And I think it's a great point in the midst of, of, of conflict. When you go through conflict, temptation escalates. Satan wants to wreak all kinds of havoc and chaos. And the best thing you can do, and the lesson we can learn from Hezekiah, is to fortify our defenses, set up some boundaries, bring some accountability into your life. When you go through conflict, you're tempted to do all kinds of things. And so he fortifies the walls. What else does he do in the story? We see in the story that not only does he fortify the walls, but he gets busy making swords and spears and shields. It's a great, great point. He's getting ready to go to war. So Hezekiah seeks counsel. He fortifies the defense, defenses, and then he understands there's a time and a place for us to go on offense. He gets his sword ready. He gets the shield ready. He's preparing himself for battle. And I think a great lesson from the story here from the life of Hezekiah is that Hezekiah knows there are certain ways to engage when conflict comes. 
Now, what I would say to you about this, if you're in the midst of conflict, you need to know this. That in conflict, in terms of Christianity, in terms of spiritual warfare, in terms of all the relational pieces, there are some things you need to be doing that takes the, the, the attack to the conflict, that moves the ground forward. It's offensive weaponry. Now, hear me. It's appropriate, ethical warfare. Okay, It's correct, biblical offense. It's not do whatever feels good in the moment, but it's understanding the, that, the, that the one of our weapons in Scripture is the sword of the, 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 the Word of God. It is our offensive weapon to wage war. And I would say to you, for instance, if you're here today and your battle right now is a relational battle, hear me. You need to seek some counsel and some wisdom. Get rid of your pride. Husbands, dude, come on. Right? You do need counsel sometimes. Get over yourself. You don't know it all. You're not all together, right? Wives, hear me. It doesn't always work. It's okay if someone else knows about the brokenness in your relationship. Go seek some counsel in that and and, and begin to protect the boundaries of your relationship. But by all means, use some offense, would you? The way to win in a a relationship battle is to begin to invest in the relationship again. My goodness, don't sit on the sidelines and go, God, where are you? My relationship's broken. Why don't you go talk? Why don't you sit down and seek reconciliation? Why don't you be able to work through those things? Do you see the point? It it applies across the board. It's offensive engagement. And so here we see Hezekiah, right? We see him get counsel. We see him set up boundaries. We see him make weapons of warfare that engages in the battle. And then something else that he does that I think is so important, right? He assembles his men after he appoints military personnel. And then he says this to everyone that's about to engage in the war. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power within us than with him. That sounds pretty New Testament, doesn't it? For greater is he that is within me than he that is in this world. So after he prepares himself for battle, he does everything he can do in his own strength and his own power. He recognizes This incredible truth, and if you're writing things down, you need to write this down as well. After he does everything he can, number two, he does this. He he recognizes that it is God who fights for his people. This is so good. Let me tell you how life works. This is the way it at least works in my life. I can go through these principles and learn from Hezekiah and get wisdom and all these types of things, but how many of you know this? Hear me. It's important for a Christian to embrace this perspective that I can do my part, but I'm ultimately trusting God to do his part. That is not just an earthly, fleshly battle that we face, but there's another dimension that's taking place here. And so it's important that I declare with certainty and with truth God's rightful position in the battle. That's so important. (laughs) But this is the way it works in my life. As I'm engaging in conflict, it inevitably, it inevitably ends up where the real battleground is right here. You're going to see over the next minute or two that this is exactly what takes place in the storyline. Hezekiah has done his part. He has proclaimed truth that there is a power greater within us than this in this world. He's going to continue that statement in verse 8. But then you're going to see, just like a good enemy, the enemy is about to engage in mental warfare. Watch this. Verse number 8. With him, that is the king of Assyria, is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our 
battles. Great declaration, right? And we would all say amen to that. That the Assyrians came against God and they only fought in their own strength. By the way, they were powerful. They just wiped out 10 tribes. All right, not a small army we're talking about, but they only came in the arm of the flesh. But, but Hezekiah says, no, they come with flesh. We come in the strength of our God. And the people gain great confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Now, the story goes on. Here where, here's where the mental game unfolds, verse number nine. Later, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he sent officers or his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. So the king of Assyria sends a letter, sends an officers with a letter. What does the letter say? Verse number 10. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? Isn't that a great question? Why, why are you acting the way that you're acting? Why, who, who do you think you are? Great question. Verse number 11. When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. I guess he didn't know about the creative out of the box thinking about the water that's running underneath the the city of David. Verse number 12. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? He has no idea of correct theology. He thinks Hezekiah has messed up by removing the altars and the false god uh, 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 practices or worship practices. Verse number 13. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of uh, of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Wow. Verse 14. Who of all the gods of these nations... That my father's destroyed has been able to save his people from me. How then can your lowercase g God, just like all the others, deliver you from my hand? Verse number 14, or 15, excuse me. Now, do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my father's. How much less will your puny little God deliver you from my hand? Verse 16, Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servants. Big mistake, big mistake. You'll see why in a moment. Verse 17, the king also wrote letters insulting the Lord. Big mistake, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the the people, uh, of the peoples of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand. So the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Verse 18, Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. The the Syrians did not speak Hebrew. It was not their native tongue, but they learned enough Hebrew to mock the Israelites in their own language. Do you see the mind games? Can I just say that there are going to be people in our life, in your life, that, that know exactly how to beat you mentally. They know exactly what to say, exactly how to form the conversation, frame the conversation so that you lose heart mentally. What happens in the story? Verse number 19. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world, the work of men's hands. Verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amaz, in the midst of the mental, spiritual warfare, did something significant. What did they do? Cried out in, and you say it with me, 
to heaven about this. Isn't this good? Hezekiah's done everything he can. He declares his truth about God. Then the mind games work. They begin to be mentally attacked. And so what does Hezekiah do? He, he gets himself together with a very significant someone. Now, again, forgive me for my, uh, my, my learning curve here. I did not make this connection. But Hezekiah, the king, gets with the prophet Isaiah. The king who's in charge of the nation and the prophet who is a representative of, of, of God to man gets together and they get on their knees before God and they cry out before the God of heaven uh, on behalf of the nation of Israel. It's a powerful point in the story. And I think what happens oftentimes in the midst of conflict in our life is we get so consumed with the battle that we forget to get on our knees before the Father and cry out to the God who has the power to win the battle for us. And so Hezekiah and Isaiah get on their knees before God and they cry out in prayer. I love, love, love the next verse. Verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with the sword. Woo! Take it! I love this part of the story because everything in the story screamed, Jerusalem is going to be lost. The Assyrian power and might surrounds the city and all looks lost, but Hezekiah does what he can do. He leans in to the strength and power of a mighty God. He gets on his knees before the Father and the, and, and the Father delivers on his behalf. Historians tell us that about 185,000 men died that night. Wow. Incredible story. So God fought on behalf of his people. The story goes on to say this in verse number 22. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Hezekiah reigned and he saw the mighty hand of God work on his behalf. Incredible lessons for us to learn today in our own journey. One other thing in closing that I thought was really interesting about this story, and I did, I've never made this connection before. I've read the book of Psalms through several times, and I've read the book of Second Chronicles through several times as well, and I've never made a connection between Second Chronicles 32 and Psalm 46. Many historians and scholars believe that Psalm 46 was written right at the time of the siege of the Assyrian Empire over Jerusalem. I want to just for a moment read to you the words of the psalm because they are powerful. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's the Gihon Spring that's feeding the city of God, Jerusalem, the city of David. It's nourishing, nourishing that city. The holy place where the Most High, God, the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fall. 
God will help her at the break of day. Of course he helps her at the break of day. Because when they awakened that next morning, they looked out across the fields that were full of the Assyrian empire, the Assyrian army, and they looked out and they saw dead bodies all throughout the land because God at the break of day was faithful to his people. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease. Of course he does. The ends of the earth. He breaks the bow or the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Some of us walked in the room this morning and you felt overwhelmed by the circumstances you were facing. And my prayer this morning is that you would leave encouraged, not because the circumstances changed, but because your perspective on the circumstances has changed. My prayer this morning, as we bow our heads and close our eyes just for a moment, my prayer this morning is this, that if you're going through life's difficult battle today, my prayer is, whether it's relational, financial, whether it's spiritual, physical, at work or at school, whatever it is, my prayer is this, that you would begin to order your steps, your thoughts, just like Hezekiah did. He got his own house in order. He began to seek the counsel that was necessary. He began to think with fresh eyes and look with fresh eyes. He prepared himself and prepared his people. And then he did what a child of God can do. He declared this truth that there is a God who is more powerful than the army that I face, the battle that I face. If you're here this morning, I think it would be very appropriate if you're going through the battle to learn from Hezekiah and Isaiah. They prayed to the God of heaven. Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.